0: All right, so here we go. So all right, one last note. The way I want to do these is not a detailed presentation of the analysis of each philosopher's philosophy itself. I want to do a little bit of that. But I've I've discovered with my students that no one can remember that. (laughs) Unless you like, write long papers on this, you can't exactly track out the seven kinds of phenomena that Kant has outlined, right? You just can't keep it in your head. Was that a noumena or a nominal event, right? I don't know. Um, so what I want to do is put them first in a historical context and then a biographical context for why any particular philosopher might choose these particular sets of problems to address. And then how they went about addressing those uh, uh, particular problems in their philosophy. If you got the handout, anybody need more? Is, we still need handouts. They're photocopying them. They're coming. Um, it includes a very brief uh, biography of Nietzsche written by me. Hands up who needs the who needs the handout? <laughs> there we go. Uh, and then long quotes from various Nietzsche works. And one of the things I want to emphasize in this lecture and all the lectures, I really suggest reading the philosophers. It's good to read about philosophers. It's good to read studies of philosophers. But at some point, it's most important to actually read the philosophers themselves. So I've given you some long chunks from several works to give you an idea of what Nietzsche's writing and thinking is like. Um, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, I don't know. All right, so we have a couple more who need handouts. Here, sure, you can have mine. I might have to ask for that back in. Okay. All right, um, Nietzsche. To begin with, it's two people, Napoleon and Kant. Always Napoleon and Kant. What Napoleon did is destroy the entire social structure of Europe, more or less in one big smash. The French Revolution got it rolling. um, And then Napoleon came through and destroyed the other monarchies. He destroyed the aristocracies. He destroyed the entire social structure of Europe. And then, of course, to finish it off, he destroyed himself, which is convenient. He was an agent of change, but almost entirely negative. He just went around smashing things. He did not necessarily mean to do that, but that's primarily what he did. What he left in his wake is the absolute triumph in France of the middle class, of the bourgeoisie. This is where they came from. When you eliminate the aristocracy, and you don't do anything to liberate the peasants, who else is left? Well, the middle class. Um, And when he achieves this in France, it more or less sets the tone for every other country. And you get these series of either revolutions or slow shifts of power from traditional modes of government to liberal democracies. Now, we wouldn't recognize them as liberal democracies. But when what preceded them was shut up or we kill you, having anybody have any chance to vote about anything looks awfully damn liberal. (laughs) Uh, But this is a huge revolution. By the time Nietzsche is born, um, that's been going on for about 200 years. But it's about 80 years after um, Napoleon that the work starts taking place that Nietzsche does. And so, this is really new. No one understands quite what it means. And so, a lot of his philosophical thinking is trying to adjust to a world that has a sort of patina of aristocratic values, but really is run by the middle class or the rising power of the middle class or what was called the bourgeoisie. So, that's one huge social transformation during his life. Two, Kant, Immanuel Kant. I almost started the lecture series with Kant, but if anybody's ever read any Kant, you'll know why I didn't. Um, (laughs) An extraordinarily difficult thinker who, who achieved many things, but probably most important for the intellectual history of Europe is he completely destroyed the rationalist project. He didn't mean to. He didn't want to. He just did. Sort of like Napoleon smashing everything, Kant smashed everything. And I was trying to think of an analogy, and what I came up with was Until that time, European intellectual life had been living in a prison, and they didn't know it. And the prison was an absolute truth. If you wanted the absolute truth, then you appealed to God. Now, we can argue all day about what God means and what God wants and what they might think or might not think, and your God and my God, but everybody believed for the longest time that you could access it. You could access absolute truth because God had it. Well, then you have the Renaissance and and the early stages of the Enlightenment and early stages of rationalism, which are all combined and mixed together. And they started saying, no, 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 absolute reason. Reason is the way to get absolute truth. We can do this. And Kant, totally without meaning to, Demonstrates pretty systematically, everything he did was very systematic, Um, but it demonstrates pretty systematically that you know what? It doesn't look like there is any absolutes at all. They may not be available, we can't have them. And so it's like he just led them out of this prison. He said, Look, we don't have to worry about absolutes. You can't argue about it anymore. Look, we're free, we're out of the prison. And then he dropped dead, (laughs) having pulled the rug out from underneath there. We got him out in the wilderness and said, we're free. And then they're like, crap, well, now what? He's like, I'm dead, I don't know, good luck with that. And so all these people inherited this tradition from Kant. Hegel, Fowerback, very famously, um, any number of thinkers But mostly what they tried to do was either, like Hegel, go, hey, let's go back to the prison and we'll pretend like it didn't exist. It's really great there, and it's not a prison. And and they came up with all kinds of various approaches to make the prison look really good. Even Marx did this. He said the absolute truth, borrowing from Hegel, is not God, of course, didn't like God, is not this, not that. It's the relations of social classes. That's where truth resides. That's what drives history. Nietzsche is the guy that came along and read Kant and read a few other philosophers like Schopenhauer, and he said, we're in the wilderness. I love the wilderness. Holy crap, the wilderness is great. And he just went running around wildly for the rest of his life. He didn't try to build new prisons. He didn't try to build new systems. He was just so happy to be out of the old prison. But then he just ran screaming through the woods. That's sort of my image of him intellectually. So you have this profound thinker who inherited two systems that were basically in complete chaos. The intellectual history of you know, Europe, which influenced a shockingly small number of people, but Nietzsche was one, the educated class. They did not really know what to do after Kant. Hegel worked for a while, but then he fell apart very quickly. Um, Thauerbach, Marx, all these people rose up as an attempt to address the problem that Kant left them, but the only thing they could think to do was to look backwards. Look backwards. Rebuild what Kant had in- inadvertently probably destroyed. Nietzsche's one said, no, look forwards. We are free. You know, sort of free at last. Great, let's go. What do we do now? That's what he worked on. But he did it in an environment, and this affected everybody, where the entire social order had been basically destroyed, overturned, did not mean what it used to mean. When you have the most blue blood aristocracy marrying their sons and daughters to uh, wealthy merchants who own dry goods stores so that they can have cash enough to keep their estates running, things have changed. It's not the way it used to be. Because it used to be that if you remember the aristocracy and you needed more money, you went and took it from the peasants. This is what it meant to be an aristocrat. You wanted it. You had the power. You took it. No more. That's gone. The French Revolution, but particularly Napoleon, had eliminated that, had undermined the whole system. So this is the world Nietzsche is born into, social chaos, Not in the sense of revolution everywhere, although there was that too, but social chaos in the sense of the old moral and political system had broken down. They didn't know what to do anymore. And intellectual chaos in which the underpinnings, which had been the Kantian system of some appeal to absolutes, had vanished. You couldn't appeal to God anymore. You really weren't supposed to appeal to reason. Well, what do you appeal to? Where do you get absolute truth? problem is you don't. And and that creates a philosophical sort of conundrum that you either ignore, as many philosophers did, or you dig right in, which was Nietzsche's approach. So Nietzsche received a traditional education of his age, a very good education. But he came from lower middle class background, lower middle class family. His father was a minister, which meant he was somewhat educated, um, but very heavy in Greek and Latin. Because another interesting aspect of this time was starting with the Renaissance, a scholastic medieval culture discovered Rome and Greece. Which is to say, that the analogy I always use is, if today we dug up a spaceship filled with art, literature, science, and music, and everything, better than what we have now, imagine the impact that would have on your society. This is what they did. They started getting these texts and translating them just beginning with the Renaissance is what kicks it off. And they went, wow, these people are thinking completely differently than we've been thinking. And it's great. Look, they make funny plays. You can't find a lot of funny medieval plays. There's a lot of funny Greek plays. The notion of humor as serious art was revolutionary. That did not exist before. Art was serious. But funny art could be serious too. And so education consisted largely of two things, religion and the Greek and Roman classics. The small tension there was, of course, the Greeks and Romans were pagans. And so you have all this generation of people being schooled exceedingly well in two contradictory modes of viewing the universe. Both of them included, well, one included a god, the other one included a whole panoply of gods, (laughs) piles of them, masses of them. (laughs) And there weren't, you couldn't reconcile them. And so this created a problem. Nietzsche solved this problem by, once he went to university, he said, I don't believe in God anymore, forget that. And so he just, he just abandoned it. But what he did believe in was philology, which is the study of languages, particularly Greek and Latin. The first important note intellectually to understand about Nietzsche is he was considered by people who should know probably the greatest philologist of his age, at a very young age. The first paper he wrote in philology, which then was about the most important field, his professor, Rickstall, came to him and said, I want to publish this in the leading journal in the country, which is the leading journal in Europe for philology. So rewrite this, and I'm going to publish it. And basically, every paper Nietzsche wrote in college was published in the leading academic journal in Europe in his time. So he was a very, very smart and good philologist. So good that when he started what would sort of be our version of graduate school, he was there for about a year when they just said, look, forget this. We're going to make you a professor in Basel. Would you like the job? You don't have to write a dissertation. You don't have to go to school anymore. We're going to give you this job as a professor of philology. And he said, yes. <laughs> Thank you. I don't want to write a dissertation, and I would like some money. That would be grand. Earth, by the way, it's the dream of every graduate student in the world. Uh, but he got it. Would anybody else need the hand out there? However, <clears throat> Nietzsche had already started to abandon philology. He found it to be pretty much sterile. And so while he was getting huge kudos and was being recognized by, and I think we need one more here, being recognized all over the country as one of the greatest upcoming minds, he was tired of it. He wanted to do more philosophical research. And what he found himself doing was lecturing in philology and the Greek classics and then trying to do his work at night. And slowly this started to kill him He's a very sick man most of his life, intermittent sickness. Now, I don't know if people are familiar with his biography at all. There's a lot of speculation about syphilis. He very well may have had syphilis, but he was sick much too young to have acquired syphilis, and he suffered various other diseases and injuries. So, complicated case, but the stress clearly exacerbated his illnesses. Uh, and so he started to work until he produced his first major work that wasn't clearly philological in origin, and that's called The Birth of Tragedy Out of the Spirit of Music. This is usually written as The Birth of Tragedy. But that's not what Nietzsche titled the work. It's important to keep this in mind. The Birth of Tragedy Out of the Spirit of Music. So he goes back into Greek history and he says, look, why are the Greeks so great? Here it is 2,000 years later. We love their plays. We love their sculpture. We love their poetry. We love the mythology. Why? What well, was it about them that made them, essentially, so much better than us? <laughs> right? If we are producing works that are on par with the Greeks, which he did not think that the Germans at that point were, that meant that they were better than you were. Why? And he said, well, here's the deal. What we've been thinking of as the Greeks, people familiar with Greek sculptures, the very clean white marbles. I mean, beautiful, stunning. Ah, curiously inaccurate. During the time of the Greeks, they had makeup and clothes. They dressed and made up and painted their statues. Hard to imagine. And so, At the time that Nietzsche was writing, and pretty much in our own age, we see the Greek world as being classical, orderly, straight lines, clean arcs, beautiful white statues. This he named the Apollonian from the god Apollo, the god of reason and justice and thinking, Apollo. And he said, what we've forgotten is the Dionysian, the god Dionysus, who is basically the god of drinking, orgiastic cults and festivals, dancing in the streets, singing, (coughs) partying, but to a religious extent, in in its greatest, (laughs) most important element. We laugh because we don't have it. (laughs) We don't recognize that as being a religious thing anymore. (laughs) Neither did they in Nietzsche's age, certainly not in Nietzsche's age. Um, But if you think of Mardi Gras in New Orleans, that is our closest, I think, we have to anything purely Dionysian in this country. It is this exuberant festival of uh, eros and drinking and crowd mob mentality. And Nietzsche said, we've forgotten the Dionysian. And that the Greek tragedies that we admire so much, all the ones that we still read today, Aeschylus and and the bunch, Aristophanes, they had what we call choruses. And the choruses was people who sang, either during, over, or in the midst of the plays. And they were satires, or sartres. They were half men, half beasts, who went around the woods raping men and women. So you had this clear tension on stage, or slightly off stage, between the ordered tragic stage play and then this commentary that you get continuously from the chorus who is literally Dionysian and he said ah, we have forgotten the Dionysian we've lost it the exuberance of life the, the thrill of the animalistic we've tried to beat it up oh being an animal is bad no, we are animals We're also the Apollo. We're also reasonable, but we're also animals. And the greatness of the Greek world was to find some way to bring those into balance. If you don't have them in balance, if you go too far to the Dionysian, you sort of get chaos. That doesn't work very well. If you go too far to the Apollonian, you get sterility. And that doesn't work very well. And he said, what you have to do is find some way of melding them together. And he said the Greek genius in this instance was to meld them together with music. And singing, the change that comes about you when you sing or when you dance, he says it's a different you. It's a new spirit of you that is expressed. That when you sing and when you dance, you are not the same you as when you figure out the tip on a bill at a restaurant. (laughs) It's a different version. And you've got to allow that version to live also. And he felt his culture, and I have to say it pretty much accurately, was doing everything it could to kill the Dionysian. Kill it wherever you can. For instance, people know what raves are. They seem to have died down somewhat in popularity. This is pure Dionysus. I mean, the Greeks would recognize that instantly. Oh, Dionysus, we got a god for that. Great. Right? And they had no problem. Except that they would say, there's not nearly enough sex. They're dancing and taking the drugs. We've got that. But where's the orgies? Where are they? I mean, that's what Greeks would say. That's what you're missing. Round this whole experience out. Um, Honestly, I'm not making that up. Read the Bacchae. You know, famous Greek play. This is what it's about. Um, and, And when you try and kill that, you lose something vital in the man, every individual man, and your social society loses it. And so, of course, you cannot express great art. You can't create it because you've killed half of yourself. And you can't create great art with half of yourself, with half of your spirit tied down or killed or rejected or denied. It must live. And so he set himself from that first work, and it's continuous through the rest of his works. He called himself the the Dionysian one. I want to be the follower of Dionysus. Not because he thought only Dionysus was important, but he got before, by raising Dionysus back up, He could counterbalance the Apollonian that had become so predominant in his culture that he thought it was killing the capacity to produce great art. So, this is work number one. And when his friends at the college, the philologists, read this, they were like, What the hell are you talking about? (laughs) (laughs)
1: Excuse
0: me? You've gone off the rails, man, if they only knew what was coming. That's the beauty of this. <laughs> I
1: mean,
0: if to if read the letters he got back, and then in context to know what's coming later, they're like, oh, wow. You're like, oh, just you wait. Um, they really, on one hand, they could not argue with his scholarship. You can never argue with Nietzsche's scholarship, by the way. He really was one of the finest scholars of his era. His facts were pretty much always absolutely right. And his writing, with the birth of tragedy throughout the rest of his life, and to this day, he is recognized as one of the two finest writers of German prose, and and the other one is Goethe. That's how much respect they have for him as poetry of the language that he wrote. And it just blew people away what an incredibly good writer he was. But what he was writing so well, they didn't have much of a stomach for (laughs) So he's... How old was he when he wrote that? Uh,
1: Twenty-five,
0: I think, roughly, right in there, twenty-five, but within a year or two. So there he is. He does that. That's his first big work out of there. Um, The second one, he finally writes some other ones. He writes a, a collection called *The Untimely Meditations*, and he's getting sicker, and finally has to leave the university. And Really, he needed to leave because it wasn't working for him. His colleagues hated him or disliked him or didn't want to talk to him because they thought he was a nut, with the important exception of of Burckhardt, a great, great classical scholar, probably the greatest of his age, thought Nietzsche was a genius, had no idea what he was talking about. And he wrote him that. You're a genius? I don't know what you're saying. (laughs) Good good for you, Jacob. You recognize it. Couldn't process it, but you recognize it. But he comes out with the second work. And this is revolutionary in two ways. And it draws directly from the birth of tragedy. Because the birth of tragedy is not only important for its content, which is radical enough, but for the fact that he says, look, tragedy has an origin. It hasn't always been there. It had to grow somehow in human society. The second important work that I want to talk about, we could talk about all of them, but we don't have time, is called *A Genealogy of Morals. And he does the same thing. He says, look, our morality, which people have argued about, but always taken more or less for granted. Morals are given. They exist. We can argue about what they are, but they're just sort of fixed in the universe. Nietzsche said, no, they have a genealogy. We can go back in history, and we can track them out. Where did they come from? Why are they the way they are? Why do we believe them and express them the way we do today? Where are they likely to go in the future? This is back to Kant. If you have no appeal to the absolute, then you start looking for this sort of more naturalistic approach. Things develop, they're born, they grow, they die, they morph, they change. If it's not fixed by God or by absolute reason or by some T with a capital some truth with a capital T, then this is what you start looking for. And, and Nietzsche was basically the first guy to do this. To say, you know what, different societies have different ideas of morality. I wonder why that is. They aren't fixed, and implicit in this is the notion that our morality is not right. People did not like this, by the way. <laughs> this was not a popular opinion in the 1800s, it's not a popular opinion today. <laughs> right? Uh, it, it's our way of life is the right way of life. Everybody else's way of life is, you know, either unfortunate or just stupid. <laughs> But Nietzsche, over 100 years ago, was like, "Yeah, no, that's not right." These ideas had to develop. And I want, there's three big essays in the genealogy board, and I just uh, genealogy of morals. I just want to track out one of them. And it's the idea of the slave mentality. He says what we have today. It was true at his own time. If it was true then it's hundred times more true today. He had what we, he called the slave mentality. And his example of this, for instance, is he said, turn the other cheek. Somebody hit you, turn the other cheek. He said, that's an idea from a slave. An aristocrat never said that. If you hit me, we're going to duel, or I'm going to kill you, or my people are going to kill you. That's what an aristocratic mode of thinking is. But he said, we have, and he meant his people at that time, and, and by extension today, a slave morality. And it came to us from Christianity. And Christianity came to us from the Jews, an enslaved people. He said, look, they were enslaved. They were fighting to survive and keep their culture alive when they had a dominant master race over the whole series of them, right? Jewish history is a whole series of people kicking the Jews around. Um, How do you survive in that circumstance? How do you keep your society together? You develop what Nietzsche called the slave morality. If someone kicks you, you turn the other cheek. Why? Because you have to. You have no choice, because you're a slave. You're in Egypt. You're not in Egypt, hanging out, having a good time. And so you turn a necessity, turn the other cheek, have pity, these kinds of things, into an asset. You say, oh no, it's not only necessary, but it's good. Everybody should turn the other cheek. And so then that got translated into Christianity. You know, meekness, the meek shall inherit the earth. He's like, that's the dumbest idea I've ever heard. Look around. What the hell the meek have? Dust. We give the meek dust. We do not let them inherit the earth. We don't say, oh, you're so meek here, have a hundred million dollars. We say, oh, we're gonna rob you of everything you have, you idiot. Meek person. Zunija had no use for this. He really was just like, this is appalling that we should feel this way. But back to the Dionysian issue, he said it's appalling because it's a poison. It's a poison in our soul because there's the Dionysian side. We can rationalize this. We can say, oh, yes, it's good to turn the other cheek. Oh, yes, it's good to be meek. But there's another side of us. There's the animal side that says, if you kick me, I'm going to bite you. (laughs) And so this poison builds up in us, because we're denying our own natures. Our natures are not to be slaves. He hated the whole notion that we are slaves. He thought, no, our natures are to be Dionysian, Apollonian, great, shining individuals. And that the slave mentality is keeping us down. Why should I feel pity for somebody? Do they deserve pity? Let's ask that first. If they're suffering, have they brought it upon themselves? If they have, well, kick them. (laughs) Why not? Nietzsche was famous for saying, a good friend, if he's sitting in his hut at night, and it's a stormy, cold, cold night, and the winds are blowing, and the rain is falling, and a friend of his comes and pounds on the door, and says, let me in, He says, a true friend, a real friend, knows when you open the door and knows when you bar the door. Because sometimes a friend needs to be let out from in the rain and warmed up and given a cup of tea, and sometimes he needs to be locked out in the rain to suffer and suffer and suffer. And and he said, we just don't recognize it anymore. We're too weak. We go, oh, he's suffering. We've got to relieve their suffering. Why? Why? Because suffering is bad. Nietzsche says, no, suffering is not bad. It is not a bad thing to suffer. It's a human thing. Suffering is part of the human. If you have a child, there's going to be some pain involved in that process. They don't just get delivered by FedEx. (laughs) 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 That pain is not bad, Nietzsche would say. It's human. And anything that's human is necessary, and therefore, by Nietzsche's view, a good thing. Now, suffering is not always good. It's not good for its own sake. You have to judge. You have to think about it. Is my suffering unnecessary? Think about all the suffering that we take onto ourselves voluntarily. Voluntarily. Some people are dumb enough to go to graduate school and you pay to suffer for years. This makes no sense at all. It really doesn't from that viewpoint. Ah, but if you view suffering as not necessarily bad then it might make sense. But once you recognize that, then you have to look at other people's suffering and start going, well, maybe that's good suffering. Maybe it's bad suffering. But you have to think about it. You can't have a reflex of pity. You have to reflect. This is completely unnatural to us. Pity, meekness. Um, the, the Greeks had a term that we do not have anymore for one of their key ideals. And that was that to be a complete person, you had to have a quality that they called sophrosyne. Uh, if there's no English equivalent, which just shows how far off we are from the Greek ideal. Um, and this was... Yeah.
1: Where, where was the story that you were talking about?
0: Oh, the person knocking on the door? It's, it's in his edited letters. I could track it down for you, but if you if you search on Google, you'll probably pull it up. But I, you can find it in his... Uh, break of Day, I think, is the collection that has it. Um, what was I... Sophrosny, <laughs> right. And in, in the Greek world, if you did not have Sophrosny, you were not a complete, full, fully realized individual.
1: Spell
0: it, will you? S-O, oh, Sophrosny. Well, that's a good question. <laughs> I believe that is it. Sifrosny. Uh I don't know if that helps when I spell it. But the, the idea was you had to know yourself. So if you were a great athlete, and someone said, man, you're a great athlete, and you said, no, no, no. They will go, Pff, you're a lying asshole. <laughs> you're a great athlete. Just shut the hell up. They had no use for this false humility stuff. Like they used to refer to Socrates as Socrates the pickle nose. Because he had a big nose like a pickle. And that was not considered rude. Because it was true. His nose apparently looked like a pickle.
1: <laughs>
0: and for him to be offended or deny that was to be unaware of himself. So if you were good at something, or you're beautiful, or you're smart, or you're, or you're gifted in some way, and he denied that, that was a breach of surprise. You're not supposed to be humble. You're not supposed to be meek. You're supposed to be truthful. And you were supposed to know yourself. Conversely, to boast about something that people really didn't think you could do was equally a breach. They said, oh, you think you can do that? Great. If you read the Iliad, there's, there's numerous instances where somebody's like, well, Hector's out killing everybody. Who's going to fight him? And some guys stand up and say, I'll fight him. And they'd be like, oh, shut up. Hector's going to kill you in like five seconds. No, we need somebody real to fight him. Because they was like, no, you're not that good. It's okay. It's cool. You're not that good. We don't mind you not being that good. It's just... Get some knowledge. Get some self-awareness. <laughs> and, when, and then famously, when Hector is going back, he's gone to the city to get his brother Paris. Beautiful moment, which Nietzsche talks about, where where Paris, instead of fighting on the walls, is in the women's quarters. Paris really wasn't a fighter. He was a lover. Um, and, and so he didn't want to fight. He wanted to make love to the women. So everybody else is fighting. And Paris, one of their great heroes, is in making love to the women. Um, <laughs> And so, so Hector says, "God, jeez. And, and Paris is the reason for the war, by the way. And, and so Hector's in there like, you know, Paris, you ought to come fight. And so he's heading back out to fight, and lead the in, and his wife, Hector's wife stops him and says, I fear for you. I fear if you go out, you're going to die. And Hector says, you know, you're right to fear for me. Because they're probably going to kill me. In fact, I think they are going to kill me. I have no chance against them. But, When I die, they're going to sack the city and burn it down and they're going to take you into slavery and you're going to be working at some other man's womb, weaving his clothes, being a slave and someone will walk by and say, see that woman? She used to be the wife of the brave Hector. Look how far in the dirt she's fallen and you'll weep. And rather than hear that weeping, I'll die first. And he goes out and dies. (laughs) See, it wasn't like a raw, raw, hey, don't worry, honey. We've got him surrounded. I'm going to kick ass. He's like, no, they're going to kill me. Achilles, he's going to kill me. Yeah, absolutely. I'm dead. And here's what's going to happen after I die. So they had this notion of you faced it. You didn't shimmy chally around on things. You tried to speak as straight and be as true as you could. It was actually considered a necessary component of any complete human being. And so Nietzsche reading these works and thinking about them at great length looks at his own society and says meekness, most people do not want to be meek. And so everybody walks around pretending to be meek. (laughs) Most people don't want to be humble. But people wander around pretending to be humble. Most people don't want to turn the other cheek. If you hit them, they turn the other cheek and immediately begin scheming on some way to get back at you. <laughs> right? I mean, it's, it's, this is the plan. And he said, so, there's a, so you live in this sea of duplicitousness that he thought poisoned people against themselves because you're repressing this whole element of you. And so he thought the entire morality of his society was essentially wrong-headed. And deadly to the expression of the best potential of humanity, which is sort of a major critique of your society. To say that, well, our entire moral moral system is, you know, gone, gone, gone wrong. That's his idea. So this is his. Again, as you can see, he mails this out to his friends, and his friends get this book and they go, whoo, wow, Nietzsche." It's one thing to say, I'm not sure I believe in God. It's another thing to say, I'm sort of questionable on the government system. But to condemn everybody, all the thinkers, all the governments, and all the religions, all in one fell swoop, that's big doings. Right? That's sort of like, y'all suck. I mean, just broad strokes. I don't like any of it. I don't like all of y'all, so shut the hell up and leave me alone. And they didn't know how to respond to that. Um, some people were invigorated by it they thought it was liberating because he was just tearing stuff down but again two things to know one his scholarship was impeccable so the arguments that he makes where does our moral moral system come from it comes from the Judeo-Christian ethic to a very large degree and he thought it was a terrible ethic now he doesn't blame the Jews or the Christians mind you this is the other thing he's like look it makes perfect sense if you're a slave you develop a slave morality it's what you do to survive. It's not the Jews' fault. It's not the Christians' fault. Christians were being abused by the Romans. What else are they going to do? They have to come up with something that allows them to survive. And what allows you to survive is a morality that says surviving is good. Do what you have to survive. Whatever it is, is good. He notes accurately that it says to, to you know, give unto Caesar, Caesar's due. Whatever government is in power, do whatever they say. He's just like, well, what kind of crazy idea is that? Particularly as he's living in the burgeoning German Reich, he's like, no, I'm very suspicious of our government. I don't want to do what it says. I think they're bad people, and they have bad ideas. Why should I do what they say? Why should I be (laughs) meek and turn the other cheek and follow orders? No, that's going to lead to bad places. And, of course, it does. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Then, he has this... Lots of other stuff happens. I'm trying to, you know, time constraints... But he comes out with what he considered to be his most important work, which was uh, "Thus Spake Zarathustra," and it was in three sections: uh, first book, second book, third book. And he wrote the first book in ten days, for which I hate him, um, because to write one of the great classics of European literature and philosophy in ten days—that that you gotta hit it. And uh, it's just not right, it's not fair, basically. Uh, and so he produces this work in which the main character, Zarathustra, is simply voicing Nietzsche's ideals. And, and if I could recommend reading any single work, Zarathustra is probably the one, because it's hilarious. Number one, it's absolutely funny. Uh, two, it's all over the map. Crazy shit happens. Yes, sections where you don't know what Zarathustra is talking about. You have sections that are sublimely important. And I'll give you two examples. Um, of this. But for Nietzsche, this is the one where he really felt most inspired, where he thought he was really laying out the future of mankind. That's what he thought. I mean, he's a little bit of a megalomaniac at times. But he thought, this is the work that's going to set man free. Not in this generation, not in that generation, but in a thousand years. Zarathustra will be the new Bible of mankind, so to speak. (laughs) He he really believed this. So uh, Two two moments that really strike me as being important. Early on, Zarathustra has come out of the mountains. He says, I want to go back to the people, and I want to help them out. I want to lead them. I want to tell them how things are. And so he's in the city square, and he starts preaching at them. Essentially, he's a prophet from the wilderness, coming back to the city. And he says, you're living wrong. You don't understand. And they all laugh at him, ignore him. And then a tightrope walker starts crossing a tightrope. And the devil appears on the tightrope jumps over the tie rope walker who falls to the ground and smashes his body. And the devil disappears and everybody flees. And so Nietzsche walks up to the, the fallen broken man and, and he says to Zarathustra, he says, you know, I think I'm going to die and my sins are going to send me to hell. And Nietzsche says, "I oh, don't worry about it. No such place. You're just going to be nothing. <laughs> and the man dies. And so Nietzsche starts wandering around with the corpse, Zarathustra. I say Nietzsche, it's the character Zarathustra, but, but he just starts wandering around with the corpse. And for the next, like, three days of the story, he's got a corpse with him. he's, like, talking to people, and they're going, you've got a corpse. <laughs> they with you. Right? And he's like, yeah, yeah, that's the guy died. Yeah, I, yeah, corpse. <laughs> this is unnerving to the people that Zarathustra meets on the road. So it's crazy. Right? I mean, there's these moments of, like, what? The de- where did the devil come from? Nietzsche does not believe in the devil. Why did the devil jump over? Who knows? Right? You've got to think about these things. It's, it's, it's impressive in this way. Uh, but the other crucial part of this is at the end of this whole long section, lots of anecdotes, lots of parables, lots of direct ideals, lots of passages like the corpse where it's not clear what he means. He says, all right, my followers, if you really believe in me, you will tear up everything I've told you and do something completely different. (laughs) That's the preaching of Zarathustra. Don't follow Zarathustra. You are Zarathustra. You've got to be your own Zarathustra. And this is a consistent ideal in his work. You've got to liberate yourself. There's no morality that can save you. There's no idea that can save you. Even me, the great, wonderful, spectacular Nietzsche cannot save you. You've got to learn, study, suffer, and then tear it all up. And good luck with that. <laughs> and, and so in a way he doesn't lead you out of the wilderness that Kant led you into. But he points out and says, look, wilderness. Huh, tiger. <laughs> Don't let it kill you. But oh, you got killed again. Uh, you know, he, just, he leaves you out there and says, good luck with that good luck with your life in the wilderness, because that's where you are. So now Zarathustra comes out, and A, it bankrupts his publisher, uh, who was having troubles anyway, um, and, and people are now just completely baffled. A couple of people write him and say, wow, that was some very beautifully composed prose, which is a way of saying... We don't know what you're talking about, but it's well-written, whatever it is. That's some nice writing, Um, and and other comments like this. But the reason the message could not be received, uh, particularly at that time, is that people wanted rules, they wanted guidelines, they wanted orderly principles that they could follow out. And Nietzsche did not, by mistake, not do that. It wasn't an accident that he didn't lay out a series of of Kantian axioms that if you follow them, you'll generate the truth in four steps. He's like, no, that kind of thing poisoned your mind. That's exactly what you can't do. If you have an answer, probably not good. (laughs) This is is where he was at. Um, After that, he had some more troubles, and and he entered the last stage of his life. Um, At the end of his life, he ends up going insane. Uh, through various brain fevers. They call it brain fevers. We still don't know what it is. Like I mentioned before, some people say it was probably advanced stage syphilis, which it may have been, but you know, he, he had all kinds of problems, physical problems throughout his life. So he may have just worked himself to death, having written, by the way, four books in the last year of his life. Um, one of which was The Twilight of the Idols. And earlier, one of the books, several books we didn't talk about, like Beyond Good and Evil, To avoid the notion of just giving people rules and guidelines and logical steps to live by or to think by to arrive at the truth, he used what he called an aphoristic style. A short paragraph, one sentence, a half a page, where he would just lay out an idea and then move on to perhaps a completely separate idea. He returns to that style in Twilight of the Idols. Um, And he says, again, another important idea, but all related. His, His work, if you read all of it, is really of a piece more than most philosophers, there's not so much a development, like, oh, this idea leads to this idea, this idea, as a flower. Everything that he wrote early just sort of expands and develops in his later material. But he introduces a, a, the final big idea I want to talk about, which is the agon. So just as a review, you know, we have the, the Dionysian to try and have this repressed part of ourselves live, the crazy animalistic orgiastic self, uh, as opposed to the reasonable, uh, orderly, Stay itself. Um, he, he tries to give us this notion of not living by the slave mentality, of, of questioning our morality. Why do we think the way we do? What are, where do these ideas come from, and should we believe them? And then the third one I thought to touch on was called the Agon. And if everybody just saw the Olympics recently, the Greeks developed the Olympics. This was a, this is a quintessentially Greek idea. Because they believed in competing all the time. Everything for the Greeks was a competition. Are you the most beautiful? Are you the fastest, the strongest, the, the richest, the smartest, the fastest, the craziest? Whatever it was, it was a competition. And they did this for their whole lives. Because they believed life was a struggle. And they believed that struggling made you whole. It's back to the notion of suffering. If you aren't suffering, you aren't trying to do anything. If you aren't trying to do anything, you're not living. You may as well die. Get out of the way. There's other people here trying to live. And they believed this. Absolutely. You had to try and struggle. Challenge yourself. Challenge those around you. Um, They believed in this. Absolutely. The only close approximation I can come up with is professional athletics. So if you see like a a National Football League game where somebody runs to try and catch a football and some huge person runs and just destroys them and breaks their leg or you know knocks their helmet off, knocks them unconscious, the Greeks would understand this. They would say, "Yes, see that's striving to live. It doesn't matter if you lose or if you win. Doesn't matter how much pain you suffer." What they wouldn't understand is that we've hired other people to do that for
1: us.
0: (laughs) The notion that we farmed out that. Like, well, that looks painful and messy. I think we'll let those people do it and we'll give them some money. Because they competed, everybody. They would have foot raises between 60-year-old men in Athens to see who was the fastest 60-year-old guy. They, truly, I mean, they did this. Now, they wanted to sort the best. and This was what the Olympics were about. Uh, and they had sort of some ways of paying athletes. But the notion that you weren't supposed to be struggling, that you weren't just some lesser version of them, they didn't. that's not how they thought. They, no, we we're all professional <coughs> football players. We're not as good as they are. That's me. We have to admit that. We can't delude ourselves. But it doesn't mean we aren't supposed to be struggling, just like they are, in our own field, in their field. Even if you know you're going to lose, you still struggle. You say, yes, I'm going to lose. Like Hector, to his wife, he knows he's going to die. And he says, I'm going to die, and you're going to be sold in slavery. That doesn't mean I stop struggling. No, we don't try to flee the struggle. We, you, you, that's what life is. That's what living is. If I don't struggle, what's the point? <clears throat> this, this is. But again, notice, this is not humility, meekness, quietness. Not turning the other cheek. Not the easy life. Retire from life. Leave it alone. No, no, no. no this, is, this is fight, fight some more, fight again, then fight some more later. And all kinds of aspects. They had... For instance, all the great Greek plays that we have are from competitions. Um, Aristophanes always won,
1: because he was
0: hilarious. He won the prize all the time. Euripides always lost, because people hated his plays. But he kept entering. He took last place on every documented competition he entered. But they apparently respected him enough to let him enter, and then to vote him as a loser every time. And that was great. And so we get his plays too. Otherwise, we wouldn't have him, which would be a tragic loss. He was clearly before his time. But you struggle and you fight. This is the agon, And in the Twilight of the Idols, amongst other things, Nietzsche says, we need to revive this sense. We need to revive this sense that life is a struggle, and we need to choose where we're going to fight. Not literal fight, by the way, but what, where we're going to come to grips. And he said the importance of this is that when you come to grips, when you try and do something that truly challenges you, it's not about what you achieve externally, which is good, it's about what you achieve internally. That's when you find out about yourself. (laughs) Not by some arbitrary measure of morality. Not by some idea of good and evil. But by some measure of your own capacity. Could I really do it? Am I capable of doing it? Could I see it through? Well, you don't know until you try. The, author, that's the reason he uses the high wire example in the opening of Zarathustra is because he says, see, if you're walking on a high wire, it's very black and white. You know. If you chicken out and turn back, you know. If you press on and fall and die or injure yourself, you know. If you cross successfully despite all the fears and trepidation that you have that you have to quell to be able to stay on that wire, you know. And so does everybody else. But most importantly, you do. But if you never face those challenges, if you never put yourself in that position, the position of the agon, which, by the way, where we get the word agony from, Greek word, the root of agony, then you're just simply left there. You're left in this dim world, which he felt that's where we were. And if you think about where we are today, what do we we want? We want medicine to ease our pain. We want education that doesn't cause too much trouble. We want to avoid suffering, to ease challenge, to level the playing field, to make sure everyone has a fair shake. Nietzsche thought this was insane. He said, what you end up with that is an undifferentiated mass of unchallenged, sleeping, herd people. (laughs) You often call people herd or cows. This is as big, you know, you just simply ruminate in a field. You have no idea what you've been doing. And he hated that because he thought we all had much greater potential. Um in the little handouts I, I have a section there at the end that says um, "Someplace." place right? <coughs> Nietzsche has profit uh, and I want to conclude for a few comments with this example because for as crazy as some of the stuff Nietzsche wrote was it turns out that he was absolutely prescient on a number of issues first and foremost he said look Here's what's going to happen. You can read this quote and you can see it. These people are going to go for the notion of the Reich in a big way because cows love to follow this kind of thing. It keeps them from having to think. And he said when you combine that with anti-Semitism, what you're going to get is a barbaric slaughter of the Jews and all other people determined not to be Germanic enough. He says this repeatedly in his letters, in his essays, in his notebooks. This is where we're going. He says, we're going to see a bonfire of the greatest books of German literature followed by a bonfire of the greatest peoples of Europe. They're going to burn it down because the people won't wake up. Because we're allowing this herd instinct to rule us. This morality does not save us. It doesn't prevent war. It doesn't prevent uh, social disorder. It guarantees it, because it slowly poisons the mind and the souls. And so it prevents, again, the capacity for great art, and it poisons the soul against true human sympathy. So this is the problem. You you become immune to truly caring about the human being, you care about some abstract version of the human being. And if somebody is determined to be evil or wrong or bad, say the Jews, just offhand in Germany, well, then you can do anything you want to them. One of his essays is entitled Beyond Good and Evil, specifically for this reason. He said, Look, if you can call somebody evil, well, then you can do anything you want to them. There, there's no rules, it, it liberates. All of those Dionysian elements that have been repressed. And you focus them very finely on a group, an abstract idea of somebody, and you just slaughter them. And he articulated this again over a hundred years ago, before World War I, before World War II. He said, this is coming. He hated anti-Semitism because he knew, he just, he. just however, I'm not sure exactly how he worked this all out. Some of it's implicit in his philosophy, some of it he seemed to just feel. He said, this is where this is leading. And he, of course, he was absolutely correct. The other thing he said is, is another prophetic element of this, um, is he said, look, the notion of good and evil allows us to judge not the acts of a man, not what you did or didn't do, but the character of their soul. He says the government in your society has no business judging you or the character of your soul. If I do something, you can say you shouldn't have or you should have and we'll punish you however we want. He has no problem with that. But don't tell me I'm a good or a bad person. You, don't, you have no right to do that. You have no, there's no place for you to stand. The only reason you can call me a good or bad person is because you're standing in for God. Because you know what right and wrong is. And then you can pass judgment on everybody else. He says, no aristocratic person would ever allow you to do that. You could kill them. Absolutely, they had no problem with that, sure. But you couldn't tell them they were good or evil, good or bad people. And he says, what's going to happen, this is true, he says, what's going to happen is, look, we're going to start trying to judge the content of a, of a criminal soul. You know what that's going to lead to? Well, then we have to ask, what about their past? Why did they commit the crime? Was it because of their parents? Was it because of their circumstances? Did they have to commit the crime? And he says, pretty soon you're not going to be able to have justice, because how could you ever deter you? would have to go all the way through the entire history of Western civilization to, turn out, to determine if somebody had really committed a crime or not. And if you look at where we are today, this is, of course, precisely where you are. We, you can plead things like a bad childhood. Now whether that's, that we should or not is one question. But Nietzsche saw this. He said, this is where we're going. Because we're not talking about what you did or didn't do. We're talking about whether or not you had extenuating circumstances. We're talking about the quality of your character, (coughs) not about your external acts. He says society has no right to determine the quality of my character. They can punish me for my acts, great, but not judge my character. But we want to say, oh, you're a criminal, you're a bad person. They used to not do that. In the Middle Ages, you'd commit a crime, they'd beat you in the county square and let you go, and it's fine. Cut your hand off if you're a thief? Fine, great. was a thief. It's not a problem.
1: <laughs>
0: right? It's not confusing. But this notion of shaming people, of wanting to, people to know that they're bad. So you have to say, I'm bad. So they, if you go to um, uh, if you want to get out of jail early, what do you call it? You go to your bail. you bail not bailing. Parole. parole officer. Yes, you go to your parole officer and you say, I would like to get out early. And they say, well, do you recant of your crimes? You admit that you're a bad person and you reformed your ways. Nietzsche would say, never admit that. Tell them they can kiss your ass. (laughs) They have no right to judge you and tell you you you're a bad person. But if you go to your parole hearing and say, no, I'm glad I shot my wife. She deserved it. I wish I had more bullets. You don't get out early. (laughs) That's the rule. They keep you in for a long time. Right? Nietzsche said, look, that's not right. We, we can put you in jail forever for shooting your wife. We can kill you for shooting your wife. Fine. We can beat you. We can make it not even a crime like it used to be. It used to be like a misdemeanor. Chill your wife, a oh, fine, 15 bucks or something. But that's all okay. But to say that you have to recant, you have to admit, oh, I'm a bad person. I shouldn't have done that when Nietzsche knew perfectly well that a lot of times people are going, oh, I'm a bad person. No, oh, I was not have shot her 20 years before. You know? Uh, that, that this, is, this is where he was at. He just thought, this is where we're going to go. That we want to judge the quality of people's souls all the time. Because look at the power that gives you. There are a number of other elements where this is true, too. But really, in those two, he was so perfectly right on, but particularly with predicting the rise of an incredibly bellicose, anti-Semitic, and aggressive uh, German military state. He was just, couldn't have been more more accurate. Yeah? Uh,
1: I've been told he was one of the founding fathers of modern sociology.
0: Uh, yeah, absolutely. This is true. I mean, I, that's where I want to go at the end. Is his, One of the things I want to talk about with other philosophers is their influence with Nietzsche? You just can't because it's just too. He did. He influenced everybody on almost every front. Um, sociology. When you start talking about where does our moral systems come from, you've started sociology. You've begun that process. Um, Adler, one of the, the leading um, s- psychologists or psychoanalysts, psychoanalysts. Hugely influenced by Nietzsche. I mean, basically, he's like, okay, let's take this section of Nietzsche and and, and work on it. I mean, it it was just revolutionary for him and and Freud to a certain extent, but really for Adler and uh, others, artists. I mean, you can, the list of writers who said, I got up one morning, went to the bookstore, got a volume of Nietzsche, and went, poof, is is very long. Yeah, his influence is is tremendous across the board. Sadly, um, to finish up his biography, he went, again, he went insane and lost his mind. He just was enfeebled uh, ten years or so before he died. And his sister, who was a total fascist, got control of his archives and turned them into a sort of propaganda machine for the rise of fascism in Germany. And so she promoted him as being an anti-Semitic, pro-German military uh, death machine, right? And so, oddly enough, a misrepresentation of this philosophy was hugely influential on the foundation of fascism and Nazism in particular. But it's important to note, and Walter Kaufman is the scholar who deserves the credit here, it was a complete misrepresentation of this work. Totally, just utter, he was violently opposed to anti-Semitism. He was violently opposed to the German military state. He hated any form of nationalism. He hated any form of anti-Semitism. He hated any form of militarism. He hated the herd. So if you could get a crowd together to march down the street, he disliked you, didn't care what the crowd was for. If you marched down the street in favor of Nietzsche, he wouldn't like you. So that's bad. You shouldn't do that, as he said in Zarathustra. Yeah. Is this work altered in any way? Yes, it was carefully edited. Uh, Fortunately, we have almost all of the originals. But when it was published um, and new editions were brought out in Germany, they were completely rewritten. And excerpts were taken and reorganized and and really uh, seriously abused. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was in his autobiography that he said that uh, he thought the Jews were the only people that really understood it. Yes. And because he had received such good feedback from so many Jewish intellectuals. Because, of course, the Jews understood the slave mentality. right? Because they have been kicked around for 2,000 years. They're like, you know, they may not have agreed with all the conclusions he drew from that, but they said yes. Let me tell you, when you are living in isolated societies and subject to continuous abuse, your society has to develop coping mechanisms. It's not like a revolutionary thought. And so he received a lot of very good feedback from Jewish intellectuals, and so he had said this in various versions of this on a number of occasions. Um, yeah. uh, so finally, again, to just sort of, I mean, again, so brief. If you look at the back of the handout, I, I listed a few works of Nietzsche to consider. Uh, human, all too human, and beyond good and evil are aphoristic collections. And So I mentioned where they're just collections of paragraphs. And, and, and single sentences. And when you read those, you don't read them like, oh, I'll read chapter one today, and tomorrow I'll read chapter two, and then in a, in a month I'll read the entire book, and then I'll understand what the book says. This is, if you want, open it more or less at random. Some of the sections will be in sequence where they fit together, some of them aren't. But you read a few, some of them are just preposterous. A lot of things need to say that said, it's like, okay, that's just not, that's just crazy. But a lot of it isn't. A lot of it will resonate with you. And some of it will resonate with you a week later, or a month later, or a year later. Um, on the genealogy of morality, which I've talked about, um, is his most uh, structured work. It's three essays. One which I talked about, which is on the slave mentality. Uh, One which is on the ascetic idea, the idea that that people should, you know, why is sexual abstinence such an important idea? Why is uh, dietary restriction so important? Why is the notion of humility such an important idea? And he says, this was just dreamed up by philosophers, because this is what you need to have if you're going to be a philosopher. You can't have a lot of stormy sexual affairs, because that's going to mess up your thinking. You can't be worried about food and getting money all the time. That's going to mess up your thinking. And you have to be kind of humble because it's a hell of a lot of dangerous, treacherous, intellectual work. And so when the philosophers sort of in the form of the church and other places got in control, what did they say? Everybody should be like the philosophers. Otherwise, what? We don't know. Otherwise, you all won't be like philosophers. But Nietzsche said this was preposterous. It's just basically saying what's good for me, I'll impose on everybody. Uh, and he didn't buy that. And then the third one, let's see. There's, anyway, there's three essays in there. Aesthetics. I forget what the third one is. They're all they're all really quite good. But they're the ones that you need to read each individual essay from beginning to end. They're organized, logical. I mean, he could write that. He just didn't choose to. Um, and then I put uh, thus begs Zarathustra, just because. Good Lord, what a roller coaster ride that is. I mean, it, it really is. Uh, it's not. Carefully edited. I mean, you get some aphorisms and whole sections where you go, "Why did I read that? What does he talk about? Does that make any sense?" But there is so much that is just revelatory, and it's written so clearly. Um, and some of the parables are just great, and they stick in your mind because they are written as short little stories and interludes and lectures. Uh, wonderful stuff. Plus, Nietzsche thought it was again. This was he thought his most important work. And then I give you some secondary literature. Um, which I think is just uh, just some suggestions. There's a huge amount of secondary literature on Nietzsche. So, so to conclude, the key elements of Nietzsche are, are this notion of one, that our ideas and beliefs and thought processes are constructed by history. They are not given by God. They aren't fixed in stone. They develop. And because they develop historically, they're subject to careful analysis, and we should be suspicious of them. He said, it is not having the power of your convictions that matters. It's having the power to overcome your convictions. Because the suspicion is our convictions are probably wrong. To actually go to war with ourselves. He quotes one of my favorite people in history, uh, the, the Duke de Talleyrand, who was an ambassador for France. And Talleyrand said... We ambassadors should always mistrust our first instincts, for they're almost always for the good. Right? Don't trust your first instinct, because you're going to want to do good. And you have to get rid of that if you're going to be an ambassador. So whatever your first thought is, hold on that. Because it's going to mislead you, because we've been trained to want to do good things. And if you're an ambassador, your job is not to do good things. Your job is to take care of business. Um, And so he says he really posits this war that you have to have with yourself, the power to overcome your convictions. Um, I mean, not an easy process. That a whole aspect, and I think this is inarguable, whatever you call it, he called it the Dionysian, but that our, our society since before his time had systematically attempted to repress a major aspect of human existence. Uh, whether you call it the animalistic part or the uh, divinely inspired part or the sort of semi-mad part. Uh, the, the manifestation we're right seeing today is in giving all kinds of kids Ritalin and all these drugs. Well, they're a little crazy. They're a little hyperactive. They don't sit quietly. They don't pay attention. Well, they're little monsters. They're little animals.
1: <laughs>
0: of course not. They're little human animals but we give them drugs because we don't want that expressed. We want to keep that part of them down, keep it down. Don't talk to young people about sex, because that's not part of life. (laughs) (laughs) I always ask my students, if you've ever had a sex education course where they talked about what a great pleasure sex was and how to maximize that. If you haven't, whatever you took was a lie. Really, it's a lie. Because it turns out people tend to like sex. The Dionysian aspect of the human animal enjoys sex immensely. The historical record on this is very clear. And to teach people about sex without mentioning that it's pleasurable sort of misses a few crucial elements. And Nietzsche is like, look, if you press that down, it's going to come back. This is why he's so influential on psychology, because he said, look, you can press it down, but it doesn't go away, because the human does not go away. It's there. And the way you get that to be expressed is you have to unleash the Dionysian, Mm and the only way to do that, or one of the main ways, is through the agon, through struggle, through challenge, through pain, through suffering, through actually putting yourself in a position where it matters what you do, where you could fail, where you might be a little afraid. Because if you don't have that, you don't know. And if you don't know, Nietzsche, Nietzsche basically he doesn't feel sorry for you. You deserve what you get then, as far as Nietzsche is concerned. Yeah. So in conclusion, and I'll take a lot of questions, um, he's a very demanding philosopher of the individual. He does not trust governments. He doesn't trust institutions. In fact, he distrusts them. We're formed by them. He did not deny this. He says, Absolutely. But we shouldn't trust them, because they aren't human. Any institution is by definition inhuman. <coughs> Only individual people matter. Individual people and collectives matter. Governments no. Nations no. And you finally judge the merits of the people by the people, and by the art, letters, and historical objects that they construct. If they aren't doing greatly, the people are probably sick, and we ought to find out why. And if they are doing greatly, then the people are probably healthy, and we ought to find out where their health comes from. But his suspicion was that his society was extraordinarily unhealthy and going downhill rapidly. So that's it. That's Nietzsche. (laughs)